the feelings you get after your sexual experience that are internal, those feelings, those are going to be the biggest determining factor about whether you're going to be interested in going into the next sexual experience. So if you have a perfectly fine sexual experience, but you're disappointed afterwards because your penis didn't do what you wanted it to do, or because you didn't orgasm when he thought you should, or because of any number of reasons, if you're disappointed, or if you feel a sense of guilt, then that's going to reduce your interest in sex the next time around. Hello and hola friends. Welcome to the Medicine, Marriage, and Money podcast, the only podcast for dual physician couples who want to achieve marital interdependence and financial freedom together. In this podcast, you will learn how to show up as the best version of yourself so that you can love intentionally and build a stronger and more financially savvy relationship with your spouse. And I am your host, a physician mom, a doctor's wife, and a life coach, Dr. Kate Mangona. Welcome. Bienvenidos. Before we get started into the show, here's a quick message from MR Insurance, a small business that helps physicians with their disability insurance needs. Michael L. Relbus is a CFP professional and insurance agent committed to helping physicians nationwide with their term life and disability insurance needs. He provides an objective, transparent, and education-focused process that aims to help physicians make prudent decisions and avoid over-complicating things. He exclusively offers own occupation disability insurance policies for residents fellows and attending physicians. We really like Michael and know he's got your best interest at heart when it comes to disability insurance. We know he'd be happy to help you with whatever your needs are. You can find Michael at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash MR insurance or contact him at 800-817-4522. Please help me welcome our guest on today's show of Medicine, Marriage, and Money. Dr. Melanie Majoros is a board-certified internist specializing in pelvic pain and the founder of Sexual Health Consultants, a sex therapy practice dedicated to healing sexual dysfunction. She is also the loving wife to Eugene, mother of a six-year-old girl, two elderly cats, and an 80-pound one-year-old puppy. And when not treating or counseling, she loves sunshine and aerial yoga. Yay! Thank you, Dr. Mulaney, for coming on my show. And pronounce your last name one more time. Majoris. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Well, let's just get started with your story before we dive into your sex therapy expertise. Give me your definition of marital interdependence. Oh, marital interdependence. Um, you know, I think that would be allowing yourself to depend on your partner and at the same time accepting their partial dependence on you. And I find that especially in the female physician community, this is challenging because we tend to be fixers and we tend to be pretty independent um, at least somewhat so in terms of our education and things like that. And I think the hard part of the marital interdependence is figuring out those details, right? Which part am I going to depend on you for? And which part are you going to depend on me for? What are my needs and what are your needs? Um, and, and how do they overlap and sometimes clash? 
So I, I find it's it's very fascinating uh, study in human behavior. Yes. What are my needs and what are your needs? I used to think that was like not necessary to know because we weren't supposed to fulfill each other's needs. But I recently learned from a psychiatrist that actually when your needs become your partner's needs and your partner's needs become your needs, you can take your relationship to the next level when you're like both on that same page. Um, and then tell us a little bit about you. Who are you? Where are you from? And what are you doing now? Um, okay. Well, I am uh, originally from Florida. Um, and then I, I sort of lived in two homes, both my father's and my mother's. She was in upstate New York. And then I went to Cornell for undergrad and then University of Pittsburgh for medical school. Then I went to OBGYN residency for one year. I always loved um, women's health and sexuality, and I was determined I was going to be an REI, an infertility and reproductive specialist, but I don't like doing surgery. My body didn't like me doing surgery, and obstetrics was take it or leave it. So um, I actually transitioned to internal medicine residency with a, speci with a specialty in women's health that included gynecology training. Um, and then from there, I went to try to find the unicorn job of one where I was only doing gynecology and not doing primary care. I love my primary care colleagues, but it is just not meant for me. <laughs> and so uh, I actually found that unicorn job and stayed there for about five years, uh, seeing 28 patients a day um, for only gynecology concerns. And that's where I got my sort of additional training with sexual medicine um, and specialized gynecology. And then I uh, transitioned to sex therapy. Okay. Yeah. And we, we, that's what we're interested in today. We're interested in that sex therapy and, and yeah, that, that transition from OB-GYN to, to um, internist, that's, that's not an easy decision. It, it wasn't because I, you know, I was doing well in my residency, my, my intern year, and I had to redo a whole nother intern year. So I did two intern years total, but they were in different specialties. Um, I do look back on that year fondly, despite me not remembering most of it because I was so sleep deprived. Um, I have the utmost respect for my OBGYN colleagues because it's that's, you know, surgery. We need that. We need that as much as we need air. We need people to fix things and their, their obstetrical skills are, are also um, necessary for us to continue. So I, I have a lot of respect for OBGYNs and everybody who does uh, medical work. Wonderful. Okay. And then let's talk about how you met your spouse a little bit before we dive into what you do currently. How, how did you guys meet? We met online. Um, I took some time off after residency to study for boards. And I actually was like, I'm going to find the right job and I'm going to be social while I do it. So I was dating and I, I was dating a, a lot of people. I was going on a lot of first dates. If I, if the sex therapy thing doesn't work out, I could be a dating um, consultant. So, um, and when I met him, he emailed me and I looked at his profile and I thought I had two thoughts. One was, um, he says he's a rocket scientist. I'm going to need to know more about that. And the second was his name is Eugene. I mean, I'm never going to marry somebody named Eugene. So I might as well go out on a date with him and find out what this rocket scientist thing is about. It is a very unique name. Very unique name. Yeah. And so I went, 
Um, I went out with him and, um, you know, after the first and second date, we basically were on the phone. Uh, we were a bit long distance at that time. Um, and, uh, I was, we were on the phone like most all the hours of the nights, um, because he was traveling and he could be, and because I didn't have a job. So <laughs> and I was single. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I didn't have anything else to do more or less. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of uh, developed our courtship in that first month before I moved up to where he lives, which was in uh, the Northern Virginia area. I was in Richmond um, before that. So we developed our courtship over courtship over the phone and then um, transitioned to real life uh, starting that one month later. Okay. So you did, you did the long distance for about one month. Yeah. It, you know, it was like getting to know you. It was, you know, we were, we were talking. Okay. Okay. Getting to know you. And then you're like, and then you decided things could get serious and you decided to move up. Um, no, actually I was already planning to move up because I was looking for jobs in the DC Metro area. So I was already setting up um, jobs and interviews and I was traveling up there. So we went on a date while I was visiting for an interview. Okay. Okay. So that's why, okay. Cause you kind of went on dates with people who, where you were planning to move. So then why'd you fall in love? Uh, you know, it's kind of a blur these days, but it's funny how life sends you curveballs, isn't it? So I moved up, uh, to the Metro area, the DC Metro area, three days, four days before snowpocalypse, which is where the, the skies opened up and dumped tens of feet of snow onto the, the world. And the day that I moved up, I ha I also herniated uh, my L5S1 um, for the second time. And so I knew that I had done this, right? Um, and I still drove up, I had to carry my cats and everything. So I had terrible sciatica pain. And um, the Metro DC area is pretty sprawling. And so his location, I was moving in with somebody um, I met on Craigslist, like, a, you know, a, a female roommate. And so his location was 35 plus minutes from me. So not around the corner. Um, and with traffic, it could be an hour and a half. So uh, he uh, was there. You know, I was like, no, I'm independent. I'm going to go to the emergency room myself. I'm going to get a taxi because I'm not going to have anybody drive 35 minutes to bring me to an emergency room because my the, my roommate left that weekend. So I had her cat, my two cats, and and uh, trying to figure out my medical care that was semi-urgent. So, uh, so, you know, anyway, from that point on, I wasn't able to, I didn't, I had surgery two months later, so I wasn't able to sit or walk much. And he was, he just stepped up, you know, he, he brought me hot cocoa and, you know, we had dates and we watched movies and we talked on the phone and he drove to see me every day from his work, which was again, 45 minutes away from me. And so, you know, and I was still trying to find a job, but it's much harder to interview when you can't stand for more than two minutes. So, so that, that was uh, a pretty uh, shocking start to our relationship. And I think it really helped us to both be more vulnerable with each other from day one. Oh my gosh. Talk about devotion. I mean, you guys had just started talking a month earlier and you're going through a kind of a serious medical. I mean, when you can't stand up for a few minutes at a time and you need surgery, that's, that's serious. And he, he brought you hot cocoa. He helped you all this stuff. Yeah. I think he was in love with you. <laughs> and and um, tell us like, what's your, do you have a favorite love story? Perhaps maybe your proposal story or something from your wedding, something funny or romantic? 
Um, that was probably the best one I have. The um, proposal story is uh, more long and involved, but you know, uh, there was a lot of, I, I had some, so I had surgery in early April and I couldn't shop, but online, I, apparently I'm very particular. So I had been shopping for all of March for an engagement ring. So I gave the information to my roommate who then gave the information to him at the time I had my surgery. And then she left and moved out and sold the house. So I needed a place to live. And I was like, I, my boundary, my personal boundary was, I don't want to move in with somebody if I'm not, you know, like family <laughs> with them. And so that was just one of my things. And so I had to tell him that. Um, and then I, and, and then they kept it a secret from me, whether he was going to propose or not. And I'm like, Hey, the time is running out. Like it's getting to be like June and, and, and I have to leave August 1st. Like, what am I going to do? <laughs> and so there was a lot of, um, you know, sort of discussion around. He, he threw me off the trail and told me that maybe he and his mother and I should go shopping for an engagement ring on the day he was going to propose. He told me that. So then I was like, Oh my God, you haven't even been shopping. Like, <laughs> So in the end, he proposed and I was like, oh, my God, it's the perfect ring. Thank you. you know, it was great. Wow. So you two knew because how many months had you known each other by then? We got engaged six months to the day that we met. So it was three months in that I, I felt confident in the engagement coming. It was meant to be. And then, okay, well, and then let's dive into your into your area of expertise then, sexuality. And I was visiting your website yesterday and I love your mantra. You deserve a healthy and happy sexuality. What, like, what does that mean? And what do you do? So I have so many mantras. I lose track of them all. And I, I target and like, you know, adjust them to the person. So one of my other mantras is your breasts belong to you and your breasts exist to give you pleasure. And, you know, pleasure is good. Orgasms are healthy. I mean, I just have all these one-liners. And so this one is really representing the fact that sexual health is a form of health and that we don't just not talk about it because it's perfect. We, we actually should talk about sexual health and sexuality because it is important. And when we don't talk about something that's important, it doesn't get better. It gets worse because it's shrouded in shame. So I, I think that, you know, that, that particular mantra is really defining the end point that we all can have with our sexuality that maybe we're not um, informed about as we grow up. Okay. So how do you talk about, you know, as a sex therapist? Oh, and can you tell us before we even talk about more topics, the difference between like a sex therapist or a intimacy coach? Or are there other things out there? There's a sex counselor as well. Yeah. So to be a sex therapist is, you know, to engage in this sort of therapy relationship with somebody or with a, a couple or, or um, you know, a client. And um, that term is not well regulated. So it is not that hard to take a weekend course and call yourself a sex therapist or to say I specialize in sex therapy. Now, there is a regulatory board called ASECT, which is the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors and Therapists. A-A-S-E-C-T. And that regulatory board um, certifies uh, sex counselors and sex therapists. A sex counselor is somebody with at least a master's degree in, in, in some sort of human services field. And um, 
or human development field, and then has done additional training um, and with supervision and experience and all of that. And then you can, it's a big application process to become an ASECT certified sexuality counselor. And then to become an ASECT certified sexuality therapist, you have to be certified. You have to have a, like a master's or a PhD or equivalent in a mental health field. And then you do additional training with hours of study and supervision. And that's when you get to be a sex certified sexuality therapist. So I um, have an MD and I am not a psychiatrist. So therefore I am an ACE because I went through all the effort to get it done. It took like three years to get the application together. Um, a sex certified sexuality counselor. The differences between them uh, the, the actual practice of sex counseling and sex therapy is really dependent on the skill set and the niche of the counselor or therapist. So, for example, I do not uh, manage um, out of control sexual behaviors, also known as sex addictions, because that is a, a, you know, sort of psychologically heavy thing. And it would be better done by somebody who has a mental health background. Whereas I do gynecological pelvic pain and the impact on the relationship. And that can turn into a sex therapy because it's a long-term problem. It's not just sexuality education. It's a lot of mindfulness and mind-body connection and even hypnosis. So that, that's the line is a little bit blurry, but um, but I, 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 I do sex therapy, but I am an ASEX certified sexuality counselor. And then intimacy coaches are on a different um, field of, of the different track of education. That is not something I'm that familiar with. Okay. So let's talk about what you, what you deal with on a daily basis, what you talk about with, with your clients. And I know like some of the common questions would be, what is the best way to communicate in bed for somebody who shows up to you with maybe desire, a couple that shows up to you with a desire mismatch, performance anxiety, erection, arousal issues, any of those types. And I know those are probably each huge topics. How do you start? And does a couple come to you or does one person come to you? Uh, usually it's a couple, but it, it can be one person. It can be one person within a couple and it can be one person who's unpartnered. So it depends on the details and their purposes and their identification of who or what is the problem, which is not always the accurate problem. Um, so the best way to communicate in bed is usually to not do it in bed um, because <laughs> when we uh, communicate about sex, it is necessarily and nearly by definition, very private, very personal and, and vulnerable. And I don't think that's great to do when naked, right? Um, unless you have already talked about it. So usually to start off the process, you wanna start off clothed and having a discussion. And, um, and that, that puts some people, that uh, freaks people out sometimes because they're like, well, we can't talk about it. We just have to, it just has to fit. It just has to work. And it's like, no, 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 you have to talk about it. Um, because if you don't talk about it, you'll never know your own preferences and needs and, and you, neither will your partner. So the best way to uh, communicate about sex, in my opinion, is using I statements followed by a feeling word or an emotion word, maybe, or two. And, and, and so that would be, I feel, or I am self-conscious when you go down on me or I, which doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. It just means that's how I'm feeling. And then your partner becomes aware of that. And you're, they're like, oh, because for some reason that never occurred to them. 
And so then, then you can start to open up the channels of communication. And then that partner would have the opportunity, the opportunity to say, well, I think that's the thing I look most forward to or something to that effect. And then it turns out you don't have a problem at all. So, I mean, I'm glossing over that, but um, the other thing to keep in mind when communicating about sex is to acknowledge your and your partner's fears and worries, anxieties and guilt and shames, because we all carry some of that stuff that we've gotten from our childhood and from early relationships. And we have to acknowledge that it's there, but you know we usually ignore it. We ignore it in ourselves and we just try to work on the action levels of, I want this, but why do you want that? What's the why that's underneath it? And then the partner's you know fears, especially for men, we don't usually name those in our heads so much aside from performance, but there's a lot more than that for them as well. And then the last tip for communicating about sex is to assume that your partner has your best interests and good motivations in their in their motivations, right, in their heart. So you give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, what that looks like is when your partner does something or says something that hurts you, you, you don't go to a place of catastrophization where it's, how could I marry this person? How could I have thought this? I was so wrong all these years to think this when this is who is the real true colors. Instead, you say, wait a minute, I'm feeling really hurt and I'm going to take responsibility for me feeling hurt. So what is it that they were trying to say to me or what were they doing defensively with for their own fears and issues that is being misinterpreted? So you assume a miscommunication and assume a misinterpretation. And then you can start asking more about that to try to prove the benefit of the doubt right. And then if your partner can't prove the benefit of the doubt right, then maybe it's time to start catastrophizing. I mean, I'm just kidding, but you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like taking a pause because we get very reactive very quickly in sexual content situations. Yeah. In all situations, actually. Okay. I love it. Yeah. So clothes, maybe start communicating in bed while you're clothed using I statements, acknowledging your partner's worries and taking responsibility for your own feelings. That's a big one, especially, especially in the coaching realm too. That is a huge one. and. And then can you tell us a little bit about how sex changes over time? Like say transitions, like having a baby, menopause, retirement. I know those are all, those are three big, big transitions. How do you talk your clients through those? Uh, <laughs> first I said expectations. And so the first set of expectations is that sex will change, right? And so everything in life changes, nothing is stagnant. And the question is, how is it going to change? Not, is it going to change? So knowing that it is going to change really helps the, um, the management of those feelings that come up around changes. It, you get some anticipatory guidance when you're pregnant because you sort of are like, okay, my body is changing, that's obvious. But you don't always know, get anticipatory guidance or anticipatory abilities relating to sex life changes when other curveballs are thrown at you. Like, a, a death in the family. How is that going to uh, impact your sex life over the next six months? It's not, not everybody has a reduction in sex as a result of that. Some people get hyper interested in sex, um, not in a pathological way, just in a coping strategy way. And, and so you just, you just don't know. So being open and flexible about change and expecting it, um, you know, 
the other way to experience change is your partner is changing and they're trying to add or subtract something from your sex life and you're not sure how you feel about that. But if you know that change was going to happen, I had a couple and she developed pelvic pain, um, probably in my opinion, related to endometriosis, but a lot of GI symptoms, GI symptoms, including sort of loss of um, gas and, you know, bloating inflatus and all that. And so when we talked about it, she had been very resistant to going, her libido went down and it's easy enough to say, oh, she had pain. She doesn't feel good. But when I dug deeper, what is it that she's doing in her sexual experience with her partner. She used to enjoy oral receiving oral sex a lot. And now she doesn't because she's too uncomfortable that maybe she's going to have an accident or something like that. And, and so when I said, that's, that's a huge change that feels like that must be really hard for you to go, even go into a sexual situation, knowing that you can't enjoy what you used to enjoy so much. And she broke down in tears and her partner had no idea that that was even in there. So it changes in ways that we can't predict. And so as long as we know it's going to change, we can roll with it. And then what about like after having a baby? Do you see couples with issues after having a baby? Yeah, definitely. They, everybody has issues after having a baby. The question is not if you have issues, it's how long will they last and will they resolve on their own? Um, it's extremely common for uh, sort of the uh, infrequent sex to start during pregnancy and to continue all the way through age two of a child. And oftentimes then there's another baby on the way. So the sex life can take a major hit as a result of kids. I actually saw prior to deciding to have a baby, I saw that there was a graph that said happiness, <laughs> it was a happiness against time graph. And it was so depressing because it showed that when kids come in, happiness goes down and it does not come back to a baseline of, uh, like the same as childless couples, the, the, the control until the kids go off to college. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. I know. I was, I mean, that's not to say that there's not a, a balance of, of that with the other parts of have being, having great big parenting and all that. But it was interesting that I was like, okay. And so I'm willingly going into this situation where happiness is going to go down for another 18 years. Okay. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, children, realistically, children and adding children to the story bring up sleep deprivation, um, which is a huge issue, as well as anxiety management, which being a parent, and especially being a mother early on and throughout their child's life, the anxiety in, in the managing of the raising of the child is just not that far from our minds, usually at all. So uh, it just brings our uh, our attention that much farther away from our own sensuality. And it can be hard to find the journey back. And, and you mentioned your one pelvic or your chronic pelvic pain patient who had her, her issues that her partner wasn't even aware of. Are these, are there other like chronic, cause that's your specialties, the, the pelvic pain. I mean, I, I see regular um, sex therapy patients as well for regular libido mismatch and communication issues. But yes, pelvic pain, I, I tend to collect those patients because of my background and my understanding of it. Okay. Okay. What else? What other kind of issues do you see there with the pelvic pain and how how successful are they in changing their sex life after sex therapy? So pelvic pain is complex and the, the duration of time it takes to move through the process depends on the specificity of the pelvic pain problem. 
um, and the other interventions, right? Because pelvic pain by definition includes the physical. So I would be taking care of the anxiety management around um, the pain and the the behavioral management of the patient and her partner. Um, and I do see men with pelvic pain as well. Um, they're an underrepresented group as well. So that um, I manage that, but I do it in collaboration with excellent sexual medicine doctors, urologists, gynecologists, um, and, and GI doctors and other, and, and physical therapists, pelvic floor physical therapists are, you know, worth their weight in gold because they can actually help with the mind body connection for women and men who have pelvic floor dysfunction. And in my opinion, when you have a pelvic pain problem that is chronic, you have a pelvic floor problem as well, because the pelvic floor will try to protect you from the pain of the pelvis. So it will squeeze in and it becomes hypertonic. And that hypertonic pelvic floor, I can work on the sort of mind to body part of the story. And but the body to mind where you actually get touch and try to re relax those muscles um, is a pelvic physical pelvic floor physical therapist. Um, that is going to help the most with that. So it's multidisciplinary and it can take a while. If you, if I get somebody who's early in their vaginismus, um, which is not a term that's used really anymore, but early in, in that process, other times people have a pelvic pain that is more like a skin irritation and, and they only need a little bit of pelvic, uh, physical therapy and, and those are going to resolve faster. Um, other times I get people that are experiencing that because they have hypermobility syndromes, or, you know, things like that. So the, it's, it's very variable. Um, the, when there's a nerve entrapment, that's not going to be a quick fix. Um, but, you know, managing the stress and anxiety that led to those things, as well as the stress and anxiety that resulted from those things is what uh, the, is, is my part of the job. Okay. So the collaboration between either OB-GYN or the urologist, and then the pelvic floor uh, physical therapist, so they kind of help with like an anatomical stuff, maybe surgery stuff. And you kind of come in and talk about their feelings, anxiety, and let's talk about how to talk about this with your partner and that kind of thing. And how the partner can help you. And because the partner comes in too, they're experiencing a pelvic pain problem too. And the cycles of guilt and shame and, and you sort of confusion, especially for men, they, they are, they're like, well, I'm married. I, we're supposed to be having sex, but then they're, they're not trying to have sex for them. They actually want the intimacy of the sex, but because of the pelvic pain, many times the woman will pull back and she will be very um, resistant to even kissing and cuddling and all of the intimacy associated with sex in the sort of broad umbrella sex term, not just intercourse. And so there becomes so much stress around intercourse and then she'll force herself to do it. She will, he won't, but then he'll feel like he's nearly raping her and it's just not good for anybody. And so there gets to be some very negative cycles around emotion and avoidance and anxiety and pain and shame and, and guilt um, on both sides. And so it's really a, a relational problem, not just a one person problem. Yeah. What, what other misconceptions besides, besides that one? Yeah. It's like, it's a relational problem. It's not just one person's problem. A lot of people might just be blaming themselves in the relationship when really they need to work about it together. What, so that's a common misconception. What other misconceptions do you, do you see when it comes to sexuality as a sex therapist? The biggest misconception I see is that men always want sex and women believe this and they also believe that a man's erection equals his attraction to her. And it's interesting that women believe this. I mean, I know why, right? Our, our society is full, it's bombarding us with these messages. 
But the man who comes in and says, sometimes my penis doesn't work, it goes down. And it's not like I want it to go down. It's just that I have this thought come into my mind or I have something else going on. And, and, and he's distressed because she's distressed. And I'm like, Hey, penis goes up, penis goes down, goes up, it goes down. You're not meant to have an erection for a full extended long time for a inter for a full sexual experience, right? It's, it's not just like, not all orgasms must come from the penis. Like it's, it's a very, you know, we would never expect this for, of women. We as women know that we can be engaged uh, energetically in a sexual situation and then something can happen and we can lose it, right? Our arousal can be medium to high and then something happens. Maybe a kid knocks on the door, you hear a cry or whatever and whatever it is for you and your arousal, boom, gone. And so yet we don't, it, it, there's no tell right? Because, you know, we know it because it happened internally. And I, I guess it's not going to happen tonight, honey, you know, whatever. But men don't have that luxury of having that happen without it being a big deal. But it doesn't really need to be a big deal. It's like, oh, go up, go down, go, it'll go back up. It goes up. We relax, we don't do the next thing, we do something else. Like, it's just sex being a straight line is, is this misconception that you have to do this to this to this. And if there's a hiccup somewhere in that pathway, then the whole thing is discarded. And I'm like, no, just go back to something that makes sense. At that moment in time, there's nothing, there's no shame, there's no problem. Um, and, and so that's relating to just in general, erectile quote dysfunction. And when I see a man for erectile dysfunction, I will, I will evaluate if his erectile dysfunction is actually dysfunctional or if it's representing a strong mind-body connection. Because we as women, we understand our own mind-body connection to some degree, and we think we want men who are really in touch with their feelings. And then when their penises don't work at every single moment, we're like, what the hell? And it's like, that's not fair. That's just not fair. <laughs> yeah, if they have a good mind-body connection, then I tell them, hey, you might be having a good mind-body connection that's healthy, right? And that might be part of this whole story. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's so true. Men, how we think, or often in, in our conversations with other women, or when we're dating or whatever it is in the movies, men always want sex. It's the, you know, that, that's just how it is. Then what happens when, you know, the woman, the woman is married or starts a relationship with the man or marry, maybe married to the man and he doesn't want sex as much as she wants. And then all of a sudden she thinks she's undesirable and she's trying and she's. Or he's broken. Or he's broken. Yeah, and he might just have a lower sex drive, and that's okay. Everybody has, you know, in, in, with two people, one person's going to have a bit of a higher sex drive or a higher sexual sexuality expression than the other person. You're just not going to find somebody who's, you'll find somebody who's compatible, but not somebody who's actually your match. Well, okay, to make a good relationship, do you have to be somewhere near the same level? Or say, what if you're at completely different levels? Like uh, the female wants sex every night or every other night and the male can go a couple weeks, you know, or a month. I mean, can, can you repair that? Can you work on that relationship? Absolutely. I When I've had couples like that, um, I, you know, get down to the point of what is it that the sex that the higher libido person wants what is it that it gives them and so i had a couple once and he had a um i think he had delayed ejaculation relating to a pelvic pain issue that was undiagnosed like it almost seemed like neurological like he was walking with a cane and things like that and nobody understood why and she wanted sex every night she kept trying to and he couldn't do the being on top part and so 
she would sort of mount him and try to have sex every night. And it was so much pressure. And at the end, when I told them, stop having sex every night, <laughs> like do this instead, have this be intimacy, do touching, do this, do that. And I, I gave them specifics and then, you know, told them to limit it to once a week or something to that effect. I don't remember the detail of what, what we came up with at that point, but it, she was like, this is so much better. She had no idea how much she was pushing herself to please him. And that's why she kept trying to do it better and better. She, cause he wouldn't come the night before. So she would try again tonight and she wouldn't come that night. So she would try again the next night. And so that's where it was just, again, along the lines of miscommunication, not so much a organic libido difference. So we have to check in with what is the higher libido person getting from the sexual experience? What is it that they're needing from the sexual experience? And what is it that the lower libido person is trying to avoid or may not be trying to avoid, but is there anything they're trying to avoid? Because then you can find the common ground that actually allows both people's interest in actual full-on sex intercourse kind of thing to become more similar. So yeah, there may be something at the root there may be something that you just don't even know about that you just kind of have to dig deeper to figure out why is this patient or why is, you know, your client or why is one of the people in the couple and the relationship not wanting something? Having a natural avoidance. Natural avoidance. Okay. It's not an intentional avoidance. It's a natural, meaning the brain is down-regulating things that will lead to something that is unpleasant. And the unpleasant part is not unpleasant always physically. It's that feeling, the feelings you get after your sexual experience that are internal, those feelings, those are going to be the biggest determining factor about whether you're going to be interested in going into the next sexual experience. So if you have a perfectly fine sexual experience, but you're disappointed afterwards because your penis didn't do what you wanted it to do, or because you didn't orgasm when he thought you should, or because of any number of reasons, if you're disappointed or if you feel a sense of guilt, then that's going to reduce your interest in sex the next time around. And then that just builds and builds and builds when there's not good communication. Uh, okay. So repeat that statement again. You said your feelings. Your feelings at the end of a sexual experience determine your interest in going into the next one. So, and that's such a big, I mean, you can apply that to anything in general, but we just don't think about that. Okay. So your feelings at the end of a sexual experience will determine your interest going into the next one. Yeah. And, and so we don't communicate about those feelings that we have after a sexual experience. We don't really do a, a, a debriefing because it seems kind of weird. So we had sex. That was good. Right. You know, and, and so they usually do that in the movies. Yeah. Well, they don't actually go deep, do they? <laughs> they just say, Oh yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure. It was. And many times it is, but what about those times we just have that nagging feeling of, Oh, I wish I had more energy for this sex or, Oh, this, this was good. It was fine, but I wish it was a little different. So that's a touch of disappointment. You don't want to express disappointment all the time to your partner in an every deep, every time debriefing kind of a way. But at the same time, if you don't notice it, then you're not going to know what is driving your reduced interest. Okay. Yeah. So maybe a little debriefing, or at least like if, if you're doing that debriefing to yourself too, and then, cause you don't even do that debriefing. Some people don't even do that debriefing in their own head. Okay. This didn't work. This worked. Let's try this next time. And then together. And then, and then what about, yeah. What about those couples that are just workaholics are always working, you know, especially physician couples and they're just tired and they're taking care of the babies. And I mean, they're like, there's, there, there's no solution because we're working and we're taking care of our kids and we are trying to get everything else done in life. 
Yeah, yeah. The 30s and the 40s are are not the calmest decades for us, I think. So they're not the most relaxed. Um, and so, you know, I think that balance is just a constant struggle. We all have to work on balance. I mean, it's it's a rare person who can be like, I got this balance thing figured out. And so when we realize that uh, balance is our goal in life, whatever our life is, we just get, I mean, I think that the main um, uh, thing to do is to choose your balance. And so saying, okay, I'm going to prioritize this and this is what it's going to look like. And people really uh, many times object to the idea of scheduling sex. And it's so funny because when sex was the best, many times people experience that and identify that as when, pe when they were dating. Okay. Not every couple has sex before they're married, but let's assume that, you know, there's a good number of couples that are like, when we were dating, sex was so easy. You know what? It was planned. It was scheduled. Of course it was easy, right? Because you got ready for your date. You knew you were going to see your honey on, you know, on, on Friday and Saturday, you shaved your legs. You thought about it on Thursday. I mean, there was all of the things you knew that you were going to see them and maybe laugh and have fun with friends or, or, you know, in doing something with a holiday or like whatever it was, like it was planned. It may not have been like scheduled. And then at 801, we are going to go and take our clothes off and get it. It wasn't quite that, but it was planned. And so then we move in with somebody and we expect that sex is just going to naturally happen when nobody plans it. Oh my gosh, I never even thought about that. You're so right. Because when you're living apart, it's like, yeah, of course it's going to happen Friday and Saturday when you're dating and you have no other obligations except for that person on Friday and Saturday nights. And yeah, things change when you move in together. You get busy with family and, and work. Yeah. And, and suddenly you're at the, at the in-law's house and you end up staying late there where had you been dating, living separately, your partner would have been like, let's get back to home. You know, but then you end up really late at the in-laws house because you didn't plan for that Saturday night to be a intimacy night. And so it's, it's sort of just maintenance. It's kind of like exercise where you maintain your body with exercise and good nutrition. You maintain your relationship with your own body, with your own sexuality and with your relationship with your partner with planned intimacy with yourself and with your partner. And just, okay. Because the, the, name of my podcast is medicine, marriage, and money. Does money or financial issues ever come into your sex therapy practice? Or, you know, do people ever bring up financial concerns or money issues as something that gets in the way of sex or something they're concerned about? In my office, usually it's relating to my fees, um, which you know, I mean, I have therapist fees. They're not quite, they're not medical doctor fees. Um, but uh, I don't talk too much about money because it's with them because it's not an area of expertise. But, you know, that they say that marriages fail because of disagreements over sex and money. So, you know, I can see uh, when that comes up, it, you know, if people have a contentious relationship around it. But, um, you know, I'm in the metro DC area. So, it's it's a little bit of a high pressure zone. Oh, right, for sure. Well, and okay, anything else we haven't covered with um, intimacy, romance, sex? Well, I think that um, making sex work over time really requires us to look critically at our beliefs and our assumptions about sex and modifying them as needed. And then we have to pursue continuing sexuality educations about ourselves and our partner. And when we look at it as a continuum of growth, 
it allows us to be open, open-minded and, you know, growth oriented, flexible and dynamic in our relationship with ourselves and with our partner. And I think that part is key. Did you want to discuss anything uh, about your finances, the way you and your honey divide financial responsibilities, if you have separate spending accounts? You know, I don't have a whole lot to say because um, uh, we don't have separate accounts. Uh, I thought about trying that once, but it didn't really work out because um, I'm very fortunate. My husband is mathematically brilliant and he's very blessed and skilled and and super smart in ways that I'm just not. And so we complement each other nicely. So he manages the things. Okay. He's a rocket scientist, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Engineer type. Yeah. He does, he does aerospace engineering type stuff. And so, um, and so he does the, but yeah, engineer type, the mind is, is just, you know, fascinatingly mathematically oriented. He can look at spreadsheets and just be like, and, and I'm just like getting dizzy. So you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate and very grateful for that. And so he does do the, the, um, the lion's share of any and all financial management. He tells me which credit cards to use because they have the best points that we get back on, you know, which one to use at the restaurants versus which ones to use at the gas pump. And I'm like, I always get it wrong. I can't keep it straight. And, you know, and so, and, and so it's, it's more comical than anything else that I'm like, I just, can't engage with that content as much as I would have to if I were single. And that's one of those things that's that interdependence that we started with, where I, what we started talking about today with, where I was like, when I was single, I was single until I was 30. Like I managed my own finances. I don't think I did a great, great job, but I, I didn't, I, I didn't suffer. Right. I wasn't in debt. You know, I, I, I paid bills eventually. And so <laughs> now I just don't, I don't have to worry about it at all. And it's all one big pot and it's, it's all ours. And he's very open about things. We have meetings periodically about it and budget and things like that. And are we going to do this? Are we going to move our money with, from one person, like from one manager to another? Are we going to do this? What do we want to do for retirement? Like we have a lot of conversations around it. Um, and then, you know, he pats himself on the back for buying Tesla stock at the right price. And, you know, so <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's relatively easy for me. I, I was almost going to say it's relatively easy for us, but I would say it's easy for me and he would be doing this even if he was single, but you know, <laughs> that's just who he is. But you're married. And was it ever a conversation when you decided to transition from like your five years of full-time internist helping patients with pelvic pain to more of a you know, a sex therapist, was that ever an issue? Like the change you might see in your, in your salary, your income? <laughs> Huge change, <laughs> especially since it was a startup. Um, I did do, uh, you know, initial, initially it was like a hobby. Um, and it, I transitioned at the same time as I was pregnant. So my first, I started my training um, before I got pregnant, my training took two years because I was working full time. And then when I was pregnant, I actually saw my first patient, my first client, um, after having done networking and things like that in the community. And then uh, when I saw them, I was like, so I have this little project and I patted my belly. <laughs> like, it's gonna be, we're gonna have to start seeing you for, you know, a couple of months, and then we're gonna have to take a little break. And, and so, uh, you know, that was, it was sort of amusing to me that that's how it all started. So my practice is the same age as my child. Um, so that's, it's sort of easy for me to remember. Um, although they have different birthdays. Um, but 
the, uh, you know, there was a period of time where financially he was stressed that I wasn't going back to work um, after the baby and that, you know, there was this urgency of got to make money, got to make money. But I just had to reset his expectations. (laughs) I just say, you know what, we're fine. I mean, you know, I, you know, I had five good years of making uh, a doctor's salary, but my salary wasn't very big anyway, because I was an internist in a surgical field. So it was sort of more like an NP salary. So, you know, th- it was just, and he was, um, you know, c- um, advancing in his career at the same time. So our, our trajectories and our incomes kind of crossed at some point. And, you know, I think it was convenient and healthy for us that uh, when we first got married, I made more money than he did. And because he was still in his 20s. And, and he wanted it to be all one money, all one pot. And then when that situation changed, as very often does for women when we have babies, um, and then our bodies are injured. Like I wasn't able to stand and do the gynecology job anymore in the same way that I was at the, before the baby. So because of my my um, hypermobility issues. So like, you know, we adjusted and now he makes more than me. And it's still all one big pot. It was always our money. And that that has been a blessing for us. And I didn't know what to do in a relationship um, when we first got together. So I was, I'm grateful that that was his perspective and that that's where we ended up. Right. I mean, you guys are both so blessed to have each other. He's lucky that you, you became a sex therapist. Now this is your specialty. You know what I mean? Well, perfect. Is there any big take home points or advice you want to give our audience? Anything maybe we haven't covered or or maybe something we already have covered and you just want to reiterate about medicine, marriage, money, sex. So <laughs> so um, sex is supposed to be fun. Sex is supposed to be something that you do because you like it. And uh, I think that's that's huge. And that women are allowed to like sex and men are allowed to like sex. And you liking it doesn't mean anything else besides that your body is working well. Uh, I think I think that's number one. And number two, those things that we don't use words to describe are things that are shameful. The silence causes the shame. And the shame causes the silence. So you want to minimize the silence to minimize the shame. That's beautiful. Minimize the silence to minimize the shame. And where can we find you, Dr. Malini? I am at sexualhealthconsultants.com. And that's my website, so it's S-E-X-U-A-L-H-E-A-L-T-H-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-A-N-T-S.com. <laughs> this is like literally a spelling test. Um, so sexualhealthconsultants.com. And you can check out my website if you'd like to. It's sort of, I, I do specialize not just in pelvic pain, but also any kind of medical issues that interfere with with, with sexual expression and sexual experience. And then, of course, I, I see regular sex therapy stuff too that's not addiction-based. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And I'm going to include those links and any other links you want me to include in the show notes so people know where to find you. And I love it. I love how you came in here and you talked about a very difficult topic for most people to talk about. Sex, how to communicate in bed, mismatch issues, everything. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Such a great show with Dr. Melanie Majoris. Now, before we end, 
don't forget to reach out to MR Insurance Consultants with their goal is to assist physicians in obtaining the most comprehensive coverage available to fit their unique situation. Reach out for both excellent and quality service at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash MR Insurance. a beautiful episode with Dr. Melanie Majoris. Thank her so much for coming on, Melanie. Now for your big take-home points or my big take-home points from Dr. Melanie. Number one, take responsibility for your love life and your emotions surrounding it. You have the power to make things better or worse. If you feel stuck, and are not actively working towards making things better, chances are they may be getting worse. Don't be afraid to talk openly about your feelings with your partner using I statements while fully clothed, not in bed. This may be hard and uncomfortable, and that is okay. If you don't know where to start, seek help from a professional. Number two. The biggest determining factor for wanting to have sex again is the feelings you have at the end of your last sexual encounter. So examine those. What are those feelings you're having? What thoughts are leading you to those feelings? And how can you create those into something that's going to want you to have more intimacy with your partner? People always say, sex is so easy when we were young and it was never scheduled. We never put it on the calendar when we were dating. Well, the truth is, it usually was scheduled. You just didn't think about it that way because the words sex date were not on the Google calendar or in your planner. You usually just got dolled up or manned up, shaved your legs or your face, and then went out on a Friday night or Saturday night date. And it, so it is okay to schedule sex. It is okay. As long as it's not something you're just checking off your to-do list, but call it whatever you like on the calendar. Cocktail night, cuddle night, snuggle puppy party time, as one of my dear friends used to call it. Snuggle puppy party time. Put it on the calendar. Make it happen. Thank you so much. That is it. Thank you so much for listening to me and Dr. Mulaney talk about intimacy on another Valentine's episode in February, closing out the month. But we will have one more Valentine's episode, so (laughs) it doesn't stop. The fun doesn't stop. Thank you so much for those of you who have reached out. I encourage you to visit my website, medicinemarriageandmoney.com. Email me, Kate Mangona at medicinemarriageandmoney.com. Let me know who you want to hear on the show. What kind of topics do you want me to cover? Give me feedback. I need, I want feedback. Reach out to me if you want to have a, if if you want to talk about feelings and thoughts and how to take your relationship to the next level. I am here. I can show you how, and I can do it for free in a 60 minute coaching call with you because that is my passion and that is what I am here to do. So take action now. And I hope you walk away asking yourself, do I take responsibility for my feelings? 
Do I communicate what I want in bed? And why or why not? Do I assume my partner has the best intentions at heart? My best intentions at heart? Why or why not? Do I believe in any sex myths such as men always want sex or a man's erection equals attraction to me? If so, are those true? Would scheduling sex be helpful for my marriage? And how can we enhance our sex life? Thank you so much again for listening. I hope you take this episode, you share it with those you may be uncomfortable talking to about it yourselves, but may need to hear this a very important message from Dr. Mulaney. She is wonderful and reach out to her, reach out to me. I love you guys. Please go spread your wings, fly off into the sunset with your spouse, spread love, intimacy, and sparks into your life, into your bedroom for the rest of this week, month, year, and your life. Much love to you and your spouse. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional, medical, or financial advice. The opinions provided on this podcast are those of myself or the invited guest alone. They do not represent the opinions of any particular institution always seek the advice of your physician or financial advisor with any questions you may have of a medical condition or financial plan. This is for your entertainment only.